Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. Um, there's a bit of noise outside, at, you know, louder than the usual screams and yells that are coming from outside my apartment. So hopefully I get everything set up right so it won't bleed through. But if you're listening on headphones, my apologies in advance. I'll definitely cut out or re-record anything with like a loud sound in it. But uh, whatever the same ambient noise that's behind you right now will probably be there for all of today, tomorrow, and the next day. So there's no point in waiting till later to record it. So anyway, uh, let's jump into the news. First up, Consoles for You now has an S-Video cable meant specifically for PAL Nintendo 64s. Uh, this is a shielded coax cable, very high quality build it looks like, um, and it's designed specifically for PAL N64s because of the weird compatibility issues they had. Um, the consoles that it's definitely working with are the uh, NUS CPU P01 and 02, uh, but they're not compatible with the, the P-03, the Pikachu and Fantastic, or the R-01, the French version. Um, I still haven't really got a, a solid grasp on exactly what the differences between all of these are, but this is part of the reason why you can't really find a universal S-Video solution for all N64s out there. Um, now, I mean, luckily, depending on your use case, this is like the only time that I've ever seen composite and S-Video not be a giant difference, especially with 3D graphics and the anti-aliasing and the blending that the N64 has. But there certainly are situations where you would absolutely appreciate the sharpness of S-Video over composite. So if you have a PAL N64 and you're in one of those situations where that little bit of sharpness would make a difference for your setup, then this seems like a pretty good solution for you. Uh, it's $40 plus shipping, which is about what to expect from a, a really well-shielded cable like this. Um, so I guess I would just make your decision on your entire setup versus, you know, just chasing the best cable. Will your setup benefit from something like this? If so, absolutely grab it. Uh, if not, then there's plenty of other decent S-Video solutions out there. Uh, I think Insurrection might have some. I'm not sure about their PAL compatibility. Uh, so I guess that's the other reason to pick this up. If you're not sure if another cable is compatible with PAL consoles, maybe don't take the chance because you'll end up wasting more money buying two cables than you would have just buying this one in the beginning. So uh, links for everything are right there in the post. The PS1 Digital just got a firmware update that added a few features. Uh, first is smoother transitions between 240p and 480i in forced mode. Uh, anybody that saw the review saw that when it uh, it did switch between resolutions, it did not drop signal at all, but you got a tiny little bit of garbage on the screen, um, and it didn't seem to affect my capture card in the slightest or any of the TVs or monitors I used. So uh, it was already in great shape during the the uh, beta review, but now with this, it doesn't seem like there's any uh, any garbage on the screen during that transition anyway. So it's a perfectly well, I guess as perfect as one could get in, in something like that. I'm sure it's not going to be perfect every time. However, uh, it's still going to not drop signal, which is the most important point. So it was a feature that already worked great. That's refined even more. Um, the PSNE mod chip is now working correctly. Um, that's something that I guess I forgot to go over in the video as well, uh, where if you install the PS1 Digital, you could add, um, I think, an extra wire or two, and it acts as a mod chip as well. Uh, so that way you could play backups, games of all different regions and stuff like that. Um, 
and I guess that had some issues, but now it's all worked out, and that's a software update, so you don't have to remod anything, which is pretty awesome. And also, there's configurable horizontal and vertical scaling. Uh, you may have noticed in that review that some shots of the menu had this in there and others didn't. It was still a beta firmware when I was reviewing it, and I wasn't sure when this would be released or if the feature would change, which is why I didn't talk about it. But it's essentially for people that want to configure uh, exactly how the image is scaled. And this could be for aspect ratio reasons. It could be, there's a ton of reasons, but just consider this like an advanced option uh, and feel free to play around with it because, you know, worse comes to worse, you just turn it off and go back to a different setting if you don't like the way it was. But uh, absolutely awesome that there's firmware updates to this thing already. Uh, you know, it's already a pretty freaking awesome pro uh, product. So I'm really interested to see what else they come up with in the future. ROMHacking.net just highlighted a bunch of patches that remove the full screen flashing from certain games, um, specifically to help people with photosensitive epilepsy, but I guess also people that are just annoyed by full screen flashing in games. Um, the transition in Mega Man 2 is the example that I used, uh, which I slowed down a lot in an animated GIF as to not trigger anybody with photosensitive epilepsy. But I really think it's awesome that they put a focus on that, um, they wrote a little news article about it, and I especially think it's awesome that people took the time to do this. Um, and while, yes, it you know, would just be a help for people that are annoyed by it, um, it also helps people that may have been nervous to try to play these games and that it might trigger their epilepsy. I actually went to high school and became pretty good friends with somebody with epilepsy back in the day, and it was weird to see how sometimes he could see seizures coming, you know, and you could kind of see the signs and go, all right, well, I'm going to be careful today. I'm going to make sure, you know, not to do these things. And other times they would come completely out of nowhere. Uh, so while I think he did play Nintendo, I don't think he ever really played a lot of these games with a lot of flashing. Uh, and it kind of makes me sad because I always talk about, and as cheesy as it sounds, I really do mean that I love how things like language translations are making the world a smaller place and allowing people from different cultures and uh, people whose first languages are not, you know, English or Japanese even, I guess, because those were the two main ones for video games. You know, all of these people can now experience these games in different languages, which I think is amazing. Um, and I also think this goes a step beyond because it takes somebody with a medical condition that's absolutely no fault of their own. You know, you can't eat too much and get epilepsy. You're born with that. And now they can experience games that may have possibly triggered them before. Now, of course, I'm not a doctor uh, and I would highly recommend if you do suffer from epilepsy to, to speak to somebody that knows what they're talking about before trying these. Or I guess depending on how um, uh, how your history has been, maybe just have a family member in the room when you're trying it out for the first time to make sure it doesn't affect you at all. That's certainly what we would have done as kids. I don't know if that's the right way to do it or not, though. Uh, I'm just very grateful that people are making these patches and that ROMHacking.net was able to highlight these for people um, just so you could really allow these games to get experienced by more people regardless of, uh, of any medical issue that you might have. An open source project for the Nintendo 64 was just released that uses a Teensy board uh, to use USB controllers on the N64. And it's compatible right now with a bunch of different controllers from 8-Bit Doe, Xbox, uh, and a few others. And some features are even implemented, such as dual analog stick support for things like GoldenEye, as well as N64 mouse support, uh, and configurable dead zones for analog stick calibration and customization, which I think is a pretty big deal for the N64. 
Um, it looks like it's in a do-it-yourself state at the moment, but it is an open source project. So hopefully somebody would pick up on this uh, and consider selling pre-made kits for people. Because I do think N64 controller configuration style things is something that a lot of people would really, really want. Um, just because some people just can't stand the original controller. Other people love the original controller, but it's always a battle to replace the analog stick and make sure to get the right one. My Life in Gaming did a whole video on that that really dug in deep on that stuff. So projects like this are a huge help for stuff like that. And I certainly hope to see it turn into a product that you could just click and buy somewhere. But if you're a tinkerer, at least you have the option to do it yourself now. Nintendo has just won a $2 million lawsuit against a mod chip seller, as well as had a few members of Team Executor, the mod chip designers, arrested. Um, Modern Vintage Gamer has a very objective and informative video that sums all of this stuff up. I don't think I could be as objective, but I will try to make this as quick as I can. Um, I have such mixed feelings about this because you don't rent your Nintendo Switch hardware. You've purchased it. You own it. And you should be able to do anything that you want with that stuff. Um, however, it doesn't seem like team the current team executor, I believe they're different than the original team executor that came out around the original Xbox days. It doesn't seem like this group of people was trying to make an open source way to jailbreak and use your own hardware that's shared with the community and could be used for great homebrew applications. It seems, at least the impression I got skimming through the court documents and, and reading up about it, it appears that they really were just looking to make as much money as they could based off of stealing other people's intellectual property. Um, not only do they sell something, which that alone, you know, that's borderline against the rules because you could put the information out there as how to do these things. However, once you start selling a tool to, uh, to hack into hardware, you know, that starts to get crazy. Essentially, whoever has the most money in court wins. But not only that, they were also selling software upgrades that allow you to have more hacking functionality, essentially upcharging you for being able to steal Switch games. And that, I think, crossed a pretty big line. Um, also, the fact that one of the team members arrested already has a history of pulling scams and stuff like that. So unless I'm wrong, which happens quite often, I just get the impression that these aren't groups of people in the gaming community that are looking to unlock your Switch. These were people looking to help you make money off of stealing games. You know, not much different than cloning a bunch of games and selling them out the back of a car type of thing. So, you know, it, intent doesn't matter at all in the law when it comes to stuff like this. Uh, you know, did you intend to ha hack your Switch to back up your save games and maybe to try before you buy, but you got a long list of games you do purchase on a regular basis so you could prove that you're not just a thief? I don't think that would matter in the eyes of at least the U.S. law. I think you're, you know, I, I think once you've crossed the line, you've crossed the line. But for me personally, it certainly does make a huge difference. I know lots of people, I know lots of people that have full collections of cartridges but still own ROM cards. And, you know, they still spend a lot of money at local game stores, supporting the game stores. They want that physical copy, but they don't, you know, they, they like to have it on their shelf and they like to have the manuals, but they, they use, you know, hacked versions on hacked consoles or on ROM carts and stuff like that. And in my mind, that's that's never something that takes away from anybody because you're still giving back to, you know, the developers for new games, to local game stores for used games and all that stuff. And this just seems to be the opposite. So uh, lots of people... Uh, are not shy about very, very uh, strongly disagreeing with my opinion on all this stuff. And that's fine. Um, I just know for myself personally, like I have no problem looking myself in the mirror when talking about this or into the camera lens because I do 
spend a lot on new games and on older games, even though I do use things like ROM carts. So while I don't have a modded Switch, I absolutely would have used it for all the reasons I just explained. And to be honest, I really, if I would have loved two Switches. I would have loved a hacked one for just testing and messing around, and then a real one that I actually buy my games and, and sit there and game on. So I don't know. It's up to you on your opinion on this one, but I would absolutely recommend Modern Vintage Gamers video on it just because it's objective and, and calm and not at all as rambly as this. <laughs> About a month ago, I released a review of the RetroTINK 2X multi-format, and a few weeks after that went live and a few weeks after the uh, devices had shipped to customers, Mike Chi had figured out how to unlock some functionality of the chips that he didn't know were possible before at all, uh, which is unfortunate timing for the review, but really awesome for everybody. So I ended up debating whether to just delete and redo the review, but for a whole long list of reasons, I ended up just doing a very detailed written review, which I thought might be a pretty cool compliment because I know some people prefer to read, some people just prefer to watch a video. There's no right answer. Both are fine. Um, so I did want to kind of go through everything, and I'll start by saying if your main focus of gaming is fifth generation consoles or earlier, uh, then the original review is still spot on, and uh, you know this is probably not the retro tank for you. It's uh, you're probably better off getting one of the other ones or even the open source scan converter. But if your main focus is sixth generation consoles, so consoles that output component video through uh, you know 480i as well as 480p and 720p, the new functionality is pretty awesome. So the first thing that Mike added was the ability to pass through uncompressed colors at 480p. So the original firmware would compress 480p colors to 422. And with this one, he uses oversampling to allow that to pass through at 444. And the way the oversampling works is it sends a 1440 by 480p picture. And as long as your TV is an HDMI device, so not a DVI connector, it should still be 4 by 3 for the correct aspect ratios. There should still be no issue. However, you do get uncompressed colors. Uh, if you're capturing, you will still see that wider resolution, and you could very easily just edit that in post or write in OBS if you're streaming. That should not be a big deal at all. If you're using a DVI monitor, though, you might get a wide resolution for 4x3 games. And if that's the case, uh, you could just hit the pass-through mode on the RetroTINK, and it'll go back to 422 mode and be compatible with everything. There is another cool feature, a third 480p mode, where if you hit the filter button, the light turns blue, and it allows all of those extra pixels, all of the oversampling to be passed through. Uh, on two of my TVs, acted totally different. My OLED, which is from 2016, ended up stretching the image after this, so it wasn't a good look to it. However, my, uh, my newer LG LCD TV didn't stretch it in oversampled mode, and I could definitely notice a big difference. Um, now, when I say big difference, big difference when, you know, when you're really looking at the screen and doing a, an analysis like I did here, um, I took a picture of the TV for this shot just because I thought it was a better fit for what I was going after. But it's pretty cool. I don't know any other device at the moment that could oversample 480p like this. Um, so it, it's beneficial because in some cases it feels like I got some more details in there, but I think more importantly, both of these modes oversample, which means that you have less issues with phase or resolution mismatch. So that's a pretty cool feature and something that, uh, if you are not an expert, just try it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And if you are an expert, you could 
uh, manipulate that pretty well and see if that's something you could take advantage of. Mike also added 720p pass-through support. Um, once again, this is pass-through. It doesn't scale to 720p. This is if you have a console like an Xbox or if you're forcing modes in the PlayStation 2, then you could pass it through. And there's no extra features, but I did notice that it was a little bit clearer of an image than a cheap $20 analog to digital converter. Now, I got three of those converters. Uh, they all have slightly different guts to them. I'm sure if I really wanted to do an analysis, uh, I could probably find little differences between those, but that wasn't the point. The point was just saying, uh, while I would certainly not recommend spending the money on this just to convert analog to digital 720p, know that if you do buy it, you're getting a pretty higher quality uh, or a high quality conversion. I spoke to a few other people about that, and they all speculated that it's possible the power circuit Mike integrated into this, as well as the chips he was using, was just you know better, better uh, you know better run on the board, better quality chips. So it's you're definitely getting a good pass through for 720p as well. And for 1080i, uh, 1080i didn't really work for me, and you can't really sample the full 1920. Uh, the chip could only pass through 1788 by 1080. But to be honest, and I'm sure there's always somebody that has a weird use case for this, but I cannot think of any reason why you would want to use 1080i on any of those games on a flat panel TV when there are 720p modes available, especially for Xbox, because every game that supports 1080i also supports 720p. So that progressive scan image, you know, you don't get any of the weird effects that you normally do with the interlacing. You don't get the lag that most TVs have in uh, interlaced modes. Um, I've had a couple of people tell me about scenarios in which 1080i on a CRT actually looks pretty cool, but you wouldn't be using a RetroTank for that then. So uh, while 1080i support isn't something you should count on. I don't think most people would use it anyway. Uh, and the only other things I wanted to reiter reiterate from the original review is that the comb filter for composite video in this is excellent and even better than the original retro tanks. So if you have a scenario in which you have mostly six-gen consoles, but you want to throw a Nintendo on there too, or, or something that never had native support for anything other than composite video, I used Super Nintendo here just because it was easier for me. Uh, anybody watching can see that the lines of interference uh, are much less on the Tink M. The comb filter really does a great job with that. So my opinion is if if you're buying this for you know, for six gen consoles, and you also want to use things like your PlayStation one or, you know, N64 or stuff like that, then it's great for all of them. Uh, the comb filter is also good for if you're passing through, um, just turn the pass through mode on for VHS tapes or any kind of video players. You don't have to worry about deinterlacing from your TV in that, uh, in that scenario. So lag doesn't matter, but you could really take advantage of the comb filter there. I just think that even with uh, even with the great filter, the bilinear scaling just does not look right on um, on classic consoles, on 2D graphics. So this still really is focused on 6th gen consoles. And, and oh, by the way, if you also have a NES or, or something, then you could use that. Um, but it just softens it too much for my taste. And this is even something I would notice sitting far back. Um, overall though, uh, I still love the product. I'm just a little bit more enthusiastic about my, about my conclusion, you know, for six gen consoles, it's now, in my opinion, awesome. And it's still, uh, the OSSC might technically be a better fit for some people's setups. You could line double 480p with that. Uh, if your scenario is six gen consoles and component video and a smattering of others with composite, 
this really is the device for you now and you could know that it works really well. Uh, but once again, if you have mostly retro or if you have like a bunch of six gen consoles and a bunch of RGB Genesis and Super Nintendo style consoles, the OSSC is still going to be a better fit because of the way it scales and everything else. But it's now the M went from something that is a, a small niche case that uh, use case to to something that I think is now expanded to a, a lot wider variety of people that might be able to use it. So while I'm sorry for rambling on in this one, um, I guess this is as, as good as it's going to get in video form for me for a while. And hopefully somebody else will uh, re-review it and take all of the data from before and now and, and put it into one really fancy review that people could use to see if this is for them. Terra Onion has just added the original PlayStation to the list of consoles their mode optical drive emulator can support. And at the moment, only a few motherboard revisions are compatible, and it does require another board to be soldered in. So it's not a plug-and-play solution like Dreamcast and Saturn for the mode. You have to solder in something that's essentially the same as an X-Station installation and then plug the mode into that. And I definitely have mixed feelings about this. So first, while my thoughts on the mode haven't changed at all since my review, um, I did have renewed appreciation for it in a few different scenarios. Um, you know, one, uh, the ease of use is certainly up there if you're if there are no other solutions available that allow you to drag and drop games. When I did the Dreamcast link cable stream with Destiny, I absolutely appreciated the heck out of just being able to drop my games onto the mode hard drive and start playing, whereas I had to, for my GDMU, find the GUI, um, uh, the GUI software that allows you to connect it in Windows to load the games up, to try to patch it correctly. To, and it was just... It was easy once I remembered how to do it, but I hadn't added games to my GDMU for a long time, so I kind of had to relearn. And it just, it was not the day for it. I was busy and I was trying to set up a stream and I just wanted to dump my games on it and go. So I definitely had a renewed appreciation for that. And also the using SSD versus using microSD is still an advantage for a couple of other reasons too. Uh, cost is certainly one of them. So if you wanted to buy something like an X station and a 256 gig microSD card, it's going to be half the price of just the mode pretty much. However, if you want to buy uh, a one terabyte micro SD card, not a one terabyte hard drive, those are like $230 now. So the cost of a cheap one terabyte SSD in the mode is actually about the same as a cheap one terabyte uh, micro SD and something like the X station. And another thing that I realized the other day was how slow those one terabyte cards can be. Um, a friend of mine asked for help setting up their X station. So I got the whole redump set and just to cut the trolls off at the pass. My friend is somebody that supports the retro gaming community, buys a ton of stuff from local game stores. They're not dirty thieves. They just wanted, uh, you know, they wanted all of their games in one spot so they didn't have to take their discs off their shelf. But I extracted the entire redump set to the one terabyte hard drive or one terabyte micro SD card. And it took on a fairly speedy PC 36 hours to complete that extraction. And then even moving files and folders around was really slow. Now it was fast enough that once all the stuff was on there, the X station was still lightning, but it, getting that stuff on there was a giant pain. Whereas when I'd done something similar on uh, SSDs with like the Saturn set, we're talking just a few hours. Um, so, you know, if this is for you or not really depends on 
how big a storage you need, uh, or if the alternative is something that always is going to require you to fumble with software. And you know, don't forget too. You know, twenty years from now, when a new versions of Windows is out, are these GUI-based tools still going to work? I have a, a laptop I keep with Windows XP uh, and Windows Seven on it, and Ubuntu actually, just for these situations, which come up all the time. Which I need to use a, an older OS to run software, just so I could use an older piece of homebrew. So. It is kind of frustrating, uh, and things like the mode certainly help for that. But the mixed feelings on it come with there's already a perfectly good solution compatible with these motherboards uh, in the X station. And it is a little odd to me that Terra Onion would spend time on something that already exists. Now, I did speak to Alex after they announced that they might be working on a Super Nintendo ROM cart, and I just asked the question, like, why would you why would you spend your time on this when there's other devices that people want that don't exist? And he very respectfully, and I'm going to paraphrase, but he basically said, I make the products that I want to make. We work on the products that we love, and we don't pay attention to what other people are doing. So it's not... You know, it's not that they set out to destroy the Super Nintendo ROM cart market. They just, they had an idea of what they wanted to do and they just want to make their own thing for it, which I think anybody could would think that's a completely fair perspective on it. I haven't spoke to any of them since the announcement on this. Uh, I just, you know, while I completely agree with that mentality, make any product that you want. If you feel like you could port over the mode to the PlayStation pretty easily, it's a great option for people that want to use large hard drives. You'd probably need a two terabyte to fit the entire US and Japanese sets on there if you wanted. I do just wish that they would concentrate on devices that either don't have any solution available whatsoever. I always bug them about making a PlayStation 2 version of this. Uh, because while yes, you could do uh, you know open PS loader and all that stuff, there for the same reasons I mentioned before, you know, looking to the future, you don't want to have to rely on software on Windows software just to make this work. And some people just don't want to mess with that. You know, if you don't have an IT background, you're going to want to just stick an SD card or a hard drive in, copy some games over, and be done. You don't want to have to worry about configuration and all that stuff. So I do think a PlayStation 2 uh, version of this or an adapter would really be a great idea or for any other console that has stuff that requires software or doesn't have an optical drive emulator at all. So, you know, obviously, uh, check out the review I did. Make your own decision on whether this is for you or not. And I'm incredibly happy that they're continuing to support and expand the compatibility of this. I do just wish I'd I'd see them expand compatibility to consoles that really could use something like this. And depending on how easy it might be, even the weird ones. I know at least three people that would buy a CDI version of the mode. I'm being a little silly here, but I'm also being serious in that if it's easy enough where they would just have to make an adapter board and they could add support for odd consoles, people would absolutely look into buying stuff like this. So, you know, kudos to Terra Onion for always uh, trying to improve their products, add different support, add different features. I just hope to see it in places that are a little more uh, where they need it, not places where there's already a perfectly good solution that works absolutely no problems whatsoever. There's a new ROM hack for Mario Kart 64 that adds a few new tracks as well as a widescreen mode, which is pretty cool for people playing through emulation. Um, And I guess it's still a bit buggy and people are having some problems with it, but it seemed like a lot of fun. And Mario Kart 64 is a really cool game, and there aren't very many ROM hacks available for it already. So I definitely wanted to share it. Hopefully the team that worked on it will still continue to tweak it. Uh, It will work on real hardware, but people had some issues with it. Sometimes you get to restart tracks 
uh, in order to get them working. But overall, having brand new tracks on Mario 64 is certainly worth messing with if you already have a ROM cart or if you have a decent emulation solution. Um, and I'd certainly like to see more ROM, ROM hacks for stuff like this because I think everybody loves themselves a good round of Mario Kart. So if you're into N64 homebrew, definitely check this one out. There's been a few updates to the Emulicious emulation project. Uh, some of the biggest updates added remote debugging with VS Code, as well as source-level debugging with ASM and C Code. Um, and also, if anybody's unfamiliar, Emulicious is an emulator that does not require installation. You could just download the version uh, with the Java software right in there. You could run it right from a folder. And it's compatible with Game Boy, Game Boy Color, Master System, Game Gear, and the MSX. Um, so while it's a perfectly great emulator for people that just want to download something and test a game, uh, it is really focused on developers with all of these extra options in there. Um, and some of these, uh, as far as I know, are pretty unique to this emulator as well. So if you're making a game for any of those consoles or handhelds, then you might want to check this out. I also wanted to ask if anybody cared how I talk about stuff like this, because in my opinion, I don't really know how to, I'm not a programmer, so I don't really know how to explain this as a programmer, but it's been my assumption that if you are a programmer, you'll hear what I'm saying and go, all right, Bob, you didn't really get that right, but now I know that I want to go look at that because this is something I would use. And if you're not a programmer, you're just going to hear, cool, Emulicious got another update. So uh, am I doing this right? Do you want more or less details on the programming side? Uh, I'm always, always open to any kind of suggestions and any way I could streamline this to make it cooler for all of you to listen to. So I'll, I'm definitely reading the comments like I normally do, and I'll take any of your feedback. A documentary was just posted about Galloping Ghost Arcade uh, just outside of Chicago, which is the at the moment the world's largest arcade with over 750 games in it. Um, I'd been there a few times with uh, with Steve from HD Retrovision and uh, a couple other friends when we did those uh, meetups in Chicago, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was a very cool place. I also found it very interesting that even though I had all of these different arcade games to choose from, I did definitely make sure to play my favorites before leaving. I think that's actually going to Gallop and Ghost is why I bought an OutRun arcade machine because even though I had all of these things to choose from, I had to get a few rounds of OutRun in uh, anyway. But uh, I think while it's a, a great documentary and if you're into stuff like this, I would recommend watching it. I, I specifically wanted to write about it because of everything going on today. Places like this are at extreme risk for shutting down if they haven't shut down already. Um, so, you know... While I don't want to see any arcade shut down, one that really bends over backwards to make sure the games are all working and to have a large collection and to do things like get one-of-a-kind arcades in there or, or get rare prototypes of stuff, um, you know, Galloping Ghost really does an amazing job with all of that. So hopefully, you know, they could st stick through all this and, uh, and still be alive for a while. Um, what I would love to do, uh, I'd love to, the next time I'm out there, work with them to kind of upgrade their streaming setup. Because uh, while there's nothing wrong with it now, uh, I think the arcade crew in New York has so many amazing tricks up their sleeve that we could probably donate a pile of gear to have their streams go, uh, you know, to have their streams look really top notch. Um, but, you know, let's let's just hope that they stay alive. And then when the world unlocks, maybe I can get out there and, and talk with the owner and, and see if we can get some equipment out to them just to kind of share the love for this stuff and you know any more ways that we possibly can so if you're into a cool documentary definitely check this one out um and if we ever end up doing something with gallop and ghost of course i'm going to make a big deal about it and you know hopefully do something fun 
Well, that's it for this time. As always, thanks so much to everybody that watches and listens and plays nice in the comments. Uh, and of course, and especially thank you to everybody that supports on Patreon and Floatplane, because without your support, none of these videos, none of the articles or the behind the scenes work would ever be able to happen. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.